Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is me, Warren Hoffman. We're going to try to do a different format on the podcast today. I recently published an essay that it's in our moral obligation as a society to make data more accessible. This episode is an audio version of that essay. You can find the essay at safegraph.com under blogs. So let's dive in. Most of the world's data is sitting on a shelf being used in a very, very narrow domain. That data, if properly activated, could solve some of the world's biggest problems and lead to more health, happiness, and love for society. We could use this data to uncover some of society's biggest secrets. The data is there. We just need to use it. We need the courage to harness the data for good. We have a moral obligation to get this data in the hands of millions of innovators, and not doing so is a true failing of society. This data can save hundreds of millions of lives and help all of humanity, which means not using it really hastens the death of hundreds of millions of people. But there are many, many dozens, maybe even hundreds, maybe even thousands of special interests fighting against making this data as accessible. Some of them have good intentions. They know this data could make people's lives better, but these special interests fight against making the data more accessible to enhance their profit, enhance their power, or sometimes just to protect the status quo. Like Mark Andreessen's piece, It's Time to Build, I'm going to give you a full-throated argument to massively increase the accessibility of data. And we need to do it all, and we need to do it now. So let's dive in. The deep truths of humanity are really at our fingertips. For decades, there have been very powerful, sensitive data sets completely unavailable to research and business communities because the institutions who own them have been unwilling to share or sell this data. This unwillingness has largely been driven by a concern for people's privacy, which makes actually a lot of sense. But what if we could have our cake and eat it too? What if we could make this data available and protect people's privacy? Large societal institutions like the government and big tech have tons and tons of data, and 99.99% of it isn't accessible to the millions of brilliant researchers, engineers, and entrepreneurs out there. We're talking about data that can fundamentally change the trajectory of society. And because they have a monopoly on the data, they monopolize innovation and slow down technological progress. There's an obesity epidemic, income inequality is still very high, wages are stagnant, we're in the middle of an opioid crisis, the average lifespan is not increasing, and public policy is responding very, very, very incrementally. The human condition is not improving fast enough. We've somehow convinced ourselves to be risk averse at a time when we really need to be daring. We really need courage. And the solution is just right in front of us. It's time to do a step function change in progress. And it starts with making data more accessible. These institutions are inherently wrong for being cautious about these data sets. People's privacy is at stake and that's important, but the game isn't zero sum. Protecting privacy and developing next generation technology and research are essential and they're actually mutually inclusive. It doesn't have to be one way or the other. We can choose to make data both more accessible and protect people's privacy. 
Before we dive in, let's clarify that making data accessible is not the same as making it free. It's okay to charge for data. We do that at SafeGraph, but it's not okay to let that data go to waste. We as a society have a moral obligation to release data for free or to sell it at a reasonable price in a privacy-safe way. First, research is artificially constrained. Tax data is a good example. The IRS has income data on hundreds of millions of people over decades. This includes the incomes of people's parents and grandparents. It's one of the largest and most comprehensive longitudinal studies in history. However, only a select few researchers have access to that data. The IRS is rightly concerned about people's privacy. This is super sensitive data. But what if we could give out access to the data while completely protecting our privacy? It's possible. We can allow people to ask questions of the data without seeing the underlying sensitive data. We can do it. We just need the courage to work on it. And we can give every researcher in the world access to the most important longitudinal study that the world has ever seen. Raj Chetty is famous. He's a professor at Harvard. He won the John Bates Clark Medal. His studies have been cited by thousands of articles. He's amazing. He's one of my favorite researchers, and he's roughly one of like four researchers that really have access to the IRS data. By analyzing tax returns, Chetty and his colleagues were able to publish many monumental longitudinal studies. One example is where Chetty and his colleagues analyzed the upward mobility across generations throughout the US, and they found that mobility was heavily influenced where one grew up. His findings, upward mobility exists, it's just not evenly distributed. This type of work has a huge impact on public policy. But that data is only available to an amount of people you can count on one hand. This doesn't make any sense. But how did Rod Chetty get access to data? He had to apply through a rigorous RFP through the IRS. And I'm sure it helps that he's an esteemed academic from prestigious institution. But therein lies the problem. You shouldn't have to have a John Bates Clark medal to get access to this data. We should make this data to every single innovator. Imagine if there were a million researchers working on the same data, society would really benefit enormously. We could better understand which types of societal programs are working, where to best allocate resources, and how to help humanity. Data accessibility is the cornerstone of this innovation in data and in data as a service. So let's open up access to this data in a privacy-safe way. By the way, as I mentioned, data doesn't have to be free. I'm sure there's lots of costs with administrating the data, the size in a privacy compliant way. It's totally okay for the IRS to charge money to recoup these costs. There are still hundreds of thousands of researchers who could afford a reasonable access fee. And we need access to real data. Currently, most researchers are working with survey data, which is not very accurate, consistent, or large enough. The real data sets are a thousand times the size of survey data. And real data produces studies that are longitudinal. You can follow the progression of individuals over years. Survey data is usually about a moment in time. Real data reveals what actually happened. Survey data only is what people remembered happened. I remember discussing this with Susan Athey on the World of DAS. Haraj Chetty had a famous paper on the government experiments in the 1980s. The government moved low-income families to higher-income areas and paid for their housing. The findings at the time didn't show any improvement in people's life situation, so the experiment was labeled a failure. But when Chetty ran the numbers years later, he found that the kids of those parents that moved actually did improve greatly from it. Young children that were part of the relocation program had a much higher rate of college attendance and higher overall earnings. This is going to sound obvious, but it must be said. Producing longitudinal studies, working with real data, 
with having high response rates, low attrition produces much better results than survey data. Healthcare data can seriously change the game. The Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, and the Veterans Affairs have a lot of data about people's well-being. In fact, there are thousands of healthcare data sets at the federal, state, and local governments. Almost all these data sets are not accessible, again, for privacy reasons. Before we proceed, we must acknowledge that the CMS does share a lot of statistics about people. The IRS does as well. That's not the main point here, even though those statistics are good. In order to progress society, researchers don't just need statistics but they don't even need full access to the underlying data either. They do need to be able to ask questions of the data about the care people receive over long periods of time. The same is true for healthcare providers and insurance companies. Lots of data in very few hands. And it kind of makes sense. Look, there are a lot of regulations to make sure no one's health situation can be identified. HIPAA violations exist for a reason. Health data is extremely private, and it should be. But like tax data, there's a way to make asking questions of the data available while still protecting people's privacy. We don't need to make a choice between progress and privacy. We can actually do both. And if there's a privacy-safe way to make data accessible, then why don't we do it today? The ramifications are infinite. Here's some obvious ones. We could more cost-effectively provide care while reducing medical errors. Data-driven diagnostics and analytics could result in the best treatments prescribed quickly. Research analysts could identify regional patterns in public health, healthcare costs, and quality of care. The efficacy of specific drugs when mapped against certain healthcare problems. We could even solve some of the most incurable diseases like cancer. There are is a chart from AEI that makes the rounds of the interwebs over the past five years. Healthcare costs have been outpacing inflation significantly. If opening up access to micro healthcare data creates opportunities to reduce our healthcare costs while up-leveling the quality of care, then why shouldn't we pursue it? Isn't it our duty? It is our obligation to make data accessible. In fact, it's our moral obligation that we should not shun. Startup innovation is also at stake. Big tech companies like Google, Amazon, Apple also have a lot of data about us. Okay, there's no surprise there. Pretty much all of it stays within their ecosystem. These companies have some of the smartest people working on some of the hardest problems we have today. But at the same time, there are millions of other smart people who could solve very challenging problems if they had access to this data. By hoarding the data, these tech companies significantly slow down innovation. Not selling or sharing their customer data is actually morally wrong. We should build a world where access to data, to knowledge, and to history is made available to all potential innovators. The world already has democratized access to compute power. Today, it's available to anyone. Open access to compute power via AWS, Azure, Google Compute, and more has massively accelerated innovation. And no, it's not free, but it's available to anyone who wants to pay for it. That's the future that we need for data. It doesn't have to be free, but it should be accessible to all. How many companies and frankly industries exist today because compute is accessible to all? Well, 10x that impact if data became accessible. Imagine the innovation. As always, joining data sets makes them more valuable. Inherently, data has no value. It's information that can be derived from data that's valuable, which ultimately dictates the value of the data. Combining data sets opens up new types of information, thereby making 
the value of each data set more valuable. Essentially, the more questions you can ask of the data, the more valuable it is. We won't solve most of society's problems by unlocking one or two data sets, although it'll help a lot. We need a movement to make them all the data sets available and then enable us to join them from different data sets to draw deeper insights. Making just the IRS data or Google's data accessible will help, but not enable all the insights we need. Joining multiple data sets is where the power lies. Travis May, the CEO of DataVant, wrote a great piece on how healthcare data is mostly fragmented. And full disclosure, I'm an investor in DataVant. But it's when you combine data about prescriptions, doctor's visits, hospital check-ins, and lab tests is when you get a clearer picture. He said, all of this disparate data points have limited utility when analyzed individually. It's when they're brought together that these data points form a full picture of the patient's health. Each additional piece of data that can be linked together has the potential to exponentially increase the value of the data set for understanding key public health questions. That's Travis May. What if we could combine pharmaceutical data with people's physical records from their doctors, their hospital visit data, and the wellness data from their Apple watches? The leaps in pharmacology and physiology would be huge. Imagine if we could combine an anonymized IRS data and the Medicaid data and the Medicare data by empirically tying people's financial well-being to their physical well-being, we could see all sorts of new issues. We could solve more problems. We could fund programs to direct public health initiatives right to where people need it most. The advancement in public health and policy alone would be mind-boggling. And there won't be a question of how to best allocate resources. The data will all be there. Of course, we can have our cake and eat it too. We can do all these things and protect people's privacy. There should be an easy way to join all these data sets. Similar to how place key is a common identifier for every physical place, we could have encrypted identifiers for people as well. Now, it sounds scary to combine all this data, and it sounds like something that could hurt privacy, but what if these data sets could be joined without having access to the underlying data, where each data set is stored decentrally? but questions can be asked across dozens or potentially hundreds of data sets. That's actually possible. We just need the courage to build it and to fight the special interests who want to protect the status quo. By the way, we've seen it work in the past. There are many examples throughout history of making data sets more accessible, which have led to innovation and societal good. Government is actually great at sharing specific types of data. For example, local, state, and federal governments share an abundance of data about property, mortgages, real estate transactions. It's messy and the structures vary from one locality to another, but it's out there. This has resulted in companies like First American, CoreLogic, Zillow, that ingest, clean up, and package this data for sale. Their data sets are utilized by governments themselves for urban planning and economic development. It's also a great example of how opening up access to data can transform society for better. Weather data is another example. The National Weather Service and NASA make their data available, resulting in businesses like AccuWeather and many other great businesses. There are lots of companies that help industries like agriculture innovate by helping make sense of this data. We take this for granted, but progress comes from building on top of data. There's also GPS data from cars and mobile devices. Anonymous pings allows us to understand mobility data. 
data was tremendously important during COVID when the world needed to understand which areas were heavily trafficked, thereby producing tons of research and influencing public policy. At the start of the pandemic, SafeGraph, where I work, gave away its data for free to the CDC, local governments, and academic institutions, and continues its academic program today. All of this innovation was only possible because institutions chose to make their data more accessible. Now, privacy is paramount. The biggest challenge in opening up access to data boils down to protecting people's privacy. It's incredibly important to protect individual privacy, and that's not really up for debate. But we have ways to solve for this. There has been huge advancements in privacy technology over the past decade, ensuring personally identifiable information is kept private and safe. But people are still making decisions like we've had tools in the 1980s. Some of this is because entrenched special interests are powerful, but some of it's just because people are unaware of the advances of protecting people's privacy. After reading this piece, the entrenched special interests will still be powerful, but at least the reader and the listener here will have a better survey of how society can promote innovation and still protect privacy. Let's start with differential privacy which is probably the most commonly used measure to ensure data privacy. To boil it down in simple terms, differential privacy adds noise or slight modifications to processes that ingest sensitive data. How much noise it creates depends on the process. The idea is that even if you remove some of the data from the data set, you arrive at basically the same end product. So if researchers are asking questions of a data set, and trying to run analysis on it, like the process, complying with differential privacy, it can allow them to arrive at effectively the same answers without compromising the data quality, even if you remove the selected data points. Why is this important? Because it ensures that the end user can't deduce who is in the data set or any one person in a data set can theoretically be added or removed and answers will still be the same. Lots of organizations use differential privacy today, including Google, Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, JP Morgan, and even in the US Census Bureau. Differential privacy, when done well, makes it virtually impossible to reconstruct the underlying data set or identify any one individual. And there's many, many other tactics for implementing privacy. Here's a few. Synthetic data. If Direct access to data is not available. It's possible to create synthetic data by randomly altering each data point in a data set. It's possible to create a new data set with the same statistical properties as the individual data set, but where no actual data point is the same. By using an algorithm to randomly modify the data points, no one's privacy is at risk, but the resulting data set can be just as useful as the original one. Let's also talk about homomorphic encryption. All data tied to people can be homomorphically encrypted, which allows end users to perform computations on data without ever decrypting it and seeing the underlying data. This resulting computations are also encrypted and can be decrypted. So let's say we have a fictional character, John, who wants to figure out X plus Y. He can submit a computation to add X and Y and receive an encrypted solution. He then will have to decrypt the solution. If the solution to X plus Y is 10, he will not receive the answer 10. Rather, the answer will be encrypted waiting to be decrypted. Why doesn't everyone use homomorphic encryption today? Well, it's slow and it's actually really expensive but it's getting better and faster every day. Nudging homomorphic encryption is one of the most important things that we can do to release underlying data. 
There's also functional encryption, a method of encryption which unique decryption keys allow end users to perform functions on the data. This means that if you have access to a decryption key, you can perform specific analyses on private data, which can be accessed without ever accessing the data itself. This allows us to ask questions of the data and see the results, but nothing else. Now, how is this different from homomorphic encryption? Functional encryption requires access to specific key, which corresponds to specific functions on the data itself. The output is also not encrypted in functional encryption, unlike homomorphic encryption. The one drawback of functional encryption is that the generation of the decryption keys to perform functions on the data can be a bottleneck to widespread use. Another interesting privacy protection is multi-party compute. Two or more parties can jointly compute a function on an encrypted data set. The input data is masked and it's not encrypted meaning that the underlying data is obfuscated or modified. The output is shared amongst the parties computing the function. The benefit of this methodology is that it's very, very hard to leak data since there are multiple parties computing the function together rather than a single point of failure. The drawback is that it does require multiple parties to compute a single function. Now, going back to what Travis made from DataVant stated, he said, we don't have to trade privacy for data utility, both can be achieved. We want to describe that the trade-off only will need to be made when we achieve the efficiency frontier, which we're nowhere near close to. The combination of new technology now means it's entirely possible to join different types of data about people without ever uncovering who they are. Now, lastly, I just want to leave us off with the fact that we can have our cake and eat it too. If we make data that exists today across large public institutions and private institutions more accessible, it will be a huge step forward for humanity. Doing so will result in unparalleled economic and policy innovation. It doesn't have to be free, but it can't be egregiously expensive either. Is the problem really privacy? On the face of it, it would seem so. But if you dig deeper, Privacy is a solvable problem. We can have our cake and eat it too. The real problem is having the courage to work on a very, very hard task of making data privacy compliant. Our goal shouldn't be to hide the data. It should be to make it safe and securely accessible. It starts with collaboration between large institutions and people. The technology is there to make sure it's executed safely and privacy is protected. And by the way, willingness to open up access will most definitely result in advances in privacy technology. We should ask institutions to meet us halfway. If you make the data accessible, we promise you the world will rise up to make sure it's used for innovation in a safe way. All we need is courage. Thank you. This is Oren Hoffman. You can follow me more on Twitter at at Oren, A-U-R-E-N. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.